Today we're concluding our, <coughs> our series about Noah, and we've seen that this is an incredibly important story in the Bible, a story that applies to each one of us, because this story points out the central purpose for our lives, to please God. And this is the big question for this morning. You can look at it there on your Bible study outline. We've been asking this question for several weeks. What can we learn from the story of Noah that will enable us to please God and bring joy to his heart? And let me say this. I am really thankful this morning that our middle and high school students are here in the service. For the past several weeks, my wife Chris and I have had the privilege and the joy of teaching our students. Chris has been teaching the middle school. I've been teaching the high school students and students, I want you to know that what we're going to talk about today <clears throat> is critically important for each one of you. It's important for all of us. But I want to do this before we go any further. I want us to take a look back. I want us to do a quick review of what we've learned so far in the story of Noah. And so I'm going to put some statements on the screen, and these are also on your outline, and I want you to fill in the blank. You can supply the missing word. Are you ready, church? <clears throat> now, as an added incentive, if you get the answer right, I have a reward for you this morning. I have a box of famous Amos cookies. So here's the first statement. Like Noah, we please God when we, what word goes in that blank? Who can tell me? Love. Who said love? I heard that all the way in the back. I'm never going to be able to throw the cookies that far. You'll need to pass those back. Okay? Okay, great. Now here's the second statement. Second statement. Like Noah, we please God when we, excellent. Trust him. I'm going to try. Here we go. Trust him completely. Excellent. And you trusted me to get that to you. Okay. And here is, okay, Richard's going to be my helper. Thank you, Richard. Number three, like Noah, we please God when we, I haven't heard it yet. Starts with the letter O. Okay, Richard, wherever you hear somebody say obey, you can go ahead and toss that out. Now, here's the last one. This should be easier. This was just last week. We talked about this. Are you ready? Like no, we please God when we... Oh, man, that was too easy, wasn't it? Okay, thank him continually. Good job. Now, today we're going to focus on this, and this is on your outline, and I'm going to move these so they don't distract you for the whole message. Okay? You need to look over here, not over there. Here's today's focus, and this is on your outline. Like Noah, we please God when we take him seriously. Like Noah, we please God when we take him seriously. Now, we know that Noah took God seriously. How do we know that? How do we know that Noah took God seriously? God says there's going to be a, a flood. It's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. What does Noah do? Yeah, he builds the ark. He follows all of God's commands. Now, what about the rest of the people in Noah's day? Did they take God seriously? No. And what happened to them? Yeah, they drowned. They perished. This topic that we're talking about today is not only important, it is literally a matter of life and death. Is that serious? Now, in order to take God seriously, we need to understand a phrase in the Bible that is so widely misunderstood, and here's the phrase, the fear of the Lord. How many of you have ever heard that before? The fear of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Look at your outline. That's the first question. Now, there are many bad things that we fear, crime, auto accidents, tornadoes, terrorists, the Zika virus, the Seminoles losing to the Gators, or the hurricanes, or anybody else. There are these bad things that we fear, so 
what does God mean when he says, you should fear me? What is that about? We'll take a look at this verse. This is Psalm 33, and it says this, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. I remember a number of years ago, Pastor Tony Evans. Did any of you ever listen to Pastor Evans on the radio? He was here in Palm Beach County, and I wanted to hear him in person, so I went with my two sons, David and Jonathan. We went to this church, and he is talking about the fear of the Lord, and I, he was really preaching. But he said this, and I've always remembered it. He said, to fear God is to take God seriously. And you know, that's exactly what the Bible is talking about. That's so consistent with what the scriptures teach because our God is an awesome God. Our God is completely just. He is perfect in all of his ways. He is the definition of love. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's in charge of every single thing. And because of his nature, because of his character, he deserves our worship and our praise and our love and our admiration. He deserves our respect and our reverence and our obedience. So here's my concise definition of the fear of the Lord. To fear God is to take God and his commands seriously. And we're gonna be talking about that this morning. Martin Luther, an important figure in the Protestant Reformation, struggled with this idea of fearing God. And he made these distinctions between two kinds of fear. One he called servile fear and the other he called filial fear. Now servile fear is a kind of fear that a prisoner would have of his jailer because the jailer can torture him or execute him or do whatever he wants. And so that's certainly a legitimate fear. But there's another kind of fear that Martin Luther talked about. It's called filial fear. And it comes from the Latin word for son. And it's a kind of admiration and respect that a child would have for their father. And the fear is not the fear of punishment. The fear the child has is that they will displease the father that they love so much. Now, it's important to remember that before a person becomes a Christian, the fear of the Lord does involve the fear of punishment. The Bible is really clear. It says the wages of sin is what? Death. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what did they do? They died. So there is a just punishment from a just God that should create a legitimate fear in our hearts. How many of you know the, the hymn Amazing Grace? A lot of people could sing the first verse. There's another verse written by John Newton that says this, to his grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear, who knows the answer? Relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And see what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ, your fear of punishment is relieved. It's gone. Why is that? Because Jesus took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. So here's the question. For a believer, what does it mean to fear God? If Jesus took our punishment, what does it mean to fear God? Well, it means to respect God, to revere God, to be in awe of who he is. Now, if you're a Christian and you start living in a way contrary to God's word, will God discipline you? Absolutely. But that discipline is not punishment. It's discipline from a father who loves you too much to let you keep going the way you are. And so for a Christian to fear God is to love God and respect God, which means that we take God and his commands very what? Seriously. Now, there's a great example, and this is in the book of Exodus, where the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, realizes that the Israelites were multiplying, 
And he's, he's terrified. He thinks they're going to rise up and revolt. And so Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives to do this. He says, listen, when there's a, a, a Hebrew mom and she's going to give birth uh, and you're there helping her, if it's a baby girl, that's fine. But if it's a baby boy, I command you to kill him on the spot. Now, what do those Hebrew midwives do? Check out this verse from Exodus. It says, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Church, to fear God is to take God and his commands very seriously. When God says you shall not murder, he means it. And every day in our nation, we see a story much like the one in the Bible playing out where babies die because people do not take God or his commands seriously. And the question is, how did this happen? How did the nation of America ever get to this point where these kinds of things happen in our nation? And I want to do this. I want to try to answer that question by taking you on a little journey. It's a historical retrospective, about seven to 800 years. So are you ready? I want to use this journey through history to help explain how we got to where we are. So it begins with the fact that for many centuries in Western culture, the starting point for what we believe was connected to the nature and the character of God. For example, the purpose of science and philosophy was to discover God and how he had designed the world. That's what scientists were looking for. They were kind of following in God's footsteps. Another example, the purpose of art and music and literature was to praise God and to honor him as our creator and sustainer. The concept of truth and morality was directly tied to the nature and the character of God. This belief in God gave us a framework for what is right and wrong. It helped us understand how to live in this world. But a shift took place during a period in history often referred to as the Renaissance. Now, this happened about 1300 A.D., and it spread throughout Europe for about 200 years. It was a time of great learning and advancement in art and literature. It also was a time where there was a, a distinct shift in the way people thought. Up until the time of the Renaissance, people believed that everything was connected to God and to his nature and to his character, but the Renaissance thinkers and artists exalted man and his abilities, and man eventually replaced God as the center of the universe. Now, this shift in thinking gave rise to a philosophy called humanism. How many of you have ever heard of humanism? This is where it began, back in the Renaissance, this idea that I'm the captain of my fate, the captain of my soul, and man was moved to the center of the universe. Now, the impact of the Renaissance was strengthened because it was followed by another period in history, known as the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason. Now, during the Renaissance, God was acknowledged. You might say that he was taken off the throne, but at least God was still in the picture. But during the Enlightenment, during the Age of Reason, some of the most influential writers like Descartes or Voltaire, they said, well, maybe there was a creator, but he's no longer involved in the affairs of men and nations. It's like that song a number of years ago from a distance. Do you remember that song? God is watching us from a distance. That's what they believed. And because God was watching from a distance, if he even existed at all, it meant that people had to figure out how to live on their own. They couldn't look to God for help. 
If you wanted to decide what was right or wrong, what did you use? Reason. And so here's what happened. In the Renaissance, man was elevated to the center of the universe. And in the Enlightenment, man's reason was elevated to the center of the universe. Now, this age of enlightenment was followed by another period in history, often referred to as the Industrial Revolution. And you know, this was a time of inventions and innovation. Um, there was an explosive um, progress in human achievement. And as people looked around and they saw all these problems that machines and technology could solve, people began to do this. They no longer looked to God for hope. Where did they look? To themselves. And this was another dramatic shift in the way that people thought. And then following the Industrial Revolution was another period in human thought that was a seismic shift. In 1859, just a few years before the American Civil War, there was a paper published by this man, Charles Darwin. It outlined the theory of evolution, the idea that the natural world could be explained apart from God. And at this point, God was not only not present, he was completely unnecessary. Charles Darwin, by the way, was a former theology student. And when he entered seminary, he believed in the authority of the scripture. And it was because of some painful experiences in his life, the loss of children, witnessing slavery, that he had a crisis of faith and he wanted to explain the world apart from God. And that was his framework for setting forth this idea that it was possible for the world to have this kind of diversity and, and organization and unity apart from a God to whom we're accountable. Now, as you take a step back from, from all these hundreds of years of history, what you can see is that right now, when it comes to truth, when it comes to morality, people have replaced a transcendent God with their own reason, and many people have become proud of what they can do and what they can achieve. And right now in our world, there are two models of truth. And here's the first model. It's called absolute truth. It's the idea that God decides what's right or wrong for everybody. And this is what the Bible teaches, that there is a truth that applies to all people in all places in all generations. But there is another model of truth in our culture and in our world. It's model number two, and it basically says this, that truth is defined by the individual. That truth depends on the situation. What is true for me may not be true for you or for anybody else. And so reason becomes the arbiter of truth. Things change because we learn new facts, because we can reason more effectively. And that, that model of truth, where you get to decide for yourself what's right or wrong, that is the dominant model of truth in our American culture. I was telling my wife last night, I was looking online at some statistics, some surveys that were done with what Americans believe. And there was one that I read last night. It says that 34% of Americans, this is the general population, only 34% of Americans believe that truth can be absolute. That there is a truth that applies to everybody, that is determined by God, 34%. Now, this is something that I think is shocking. If you look at the church, these are people who would say, I am a Christian. I've been born again. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen to this, church. Only 46% of Christians say they believe in absolute truth. Now you think about that. You think about how the dominant thought of the culture has made inroads into the church and eroded this perspective that God's truth is absolute. 
And we look at our laws in this nation. We look at the laws concerning abortion or marriage, and we wonder, how did this happen? This is how it happened. Because people have rejected God. Because people believe there is no absolute truth, and when there is no absolute truth, we no longer need to take God or his commands seriously. Now, that leads us to another really important question on your outline. Look at this question. Why is the fear of the Lord such a big deal? And here's the answer. The fear of the Lord leads us to a new life. The fear of the Lord leads us to a brand new life. Look at these verses from the, the book of Proverbs, written by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And look at this verse. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And notice this phrase. This is so important. Turning a man, a woman, a student from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Turning a person from the snares of death. Now, we've talked about this before. When we come into this world, we have a heart problem. And it's not a physical heart problem. It's a spiritual heart problem. And the problem is this. Our heart, how many of you have heard the phrase, just listen to your heart? That's a dangerous thing to do. Because the Bible says that our heart pulls us away from God's purpose and away from God's plan for our lives. And the truth of Scripture, the absolute truth, is that all of us have broken the laws of a holy and just God. And because of that, God says, I have to punish you. I can't deny who I am. I'm a just God, a holy God. And what is that just punishment? Is to die and to be separated from God forever. Now, does anybody like to hear that news? No. Oh, hey, listen, thanks so much for telling me that I'm a sinner and I, I sh should, you know just die and go to hell. People don't like to hear that. Do we need to hear that truth? Well, absolutely, because that truth, that bad news prepares us to hear the good news, that there is a God who loves you like nobody else, more than you can ever imagine. And this God, who exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God the Father sends God the Son to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, according to Scripture, does something that no human being had ever been able to do. He lives what kind of life? He lives a perfect life. Now think about this. This is absolutely astounding. Do you know how many Americans, this is general population, believe that Jesus lived a perfect life? 40%. 40%. Now that shouldn't shock us, right? I mean, a lot of people don't believe what the Bible says. But now let's go over into the church. These are the people that say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I've signed up. For a new life, I've surrendered my heart to him. How many of people who claim to be born-again evangelical Christians, and all that's redundant because a Christian is a Christian, but how many of those who claim to be Christians believe that Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life? Only 62%. That's astounding. Because if Jesus didn't live a perfect life, the entire gospel unravels. If Jesus didn't live a perfect life, he's not qualified to be our substitute. What happened on the cross means, means nothing because we aren't forgiven. But friends, the truth of God's word is absolute. Remember a few weeks ago I talked about gravity? Remember that? And I said if I jump off the stage, what's going to happen? What direction am I going to go? Now, if you stand up here and tell me, I don't believe that, Pastor Dudley. I don't care if you believe it or not. This is how the, the world works. This is how the universe was created by God. If I jump off, I'm going down. And I made the point, and this is so important, the same physical laws that govern the universe apply to the spiritual laws that govern the universe because these spiritual laws correspond to the way it really is. 
And let me tell you the way it really is. Jesus lived a sinless life. And Jesus really died on a cross. And on the cross, this God who loves us was willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. And Jesus died the death that we deserved, and God raised him from the dead. And Jesus said, hey, come and follow me. Admit you're a sinner. Believe that I died for you. And church, realize this. If Jesus is your Savior, Jesus is your Lord. He is your master. He's the one who calls the shots. And I'll tell you this. I have come to understand that when Jesus says, come and follow me, he wants us to take that command seriously. Because that's what the fear of the Lord is all about. And that leads us to another important observation. This is on your outline as well, about the fear of the Lord, number two. It says this, the fear of the Lord protects us from the consequences of disobedience. Taking God seriously protects you. There was a story that I heard about this father, and he had all kinds of trouble with his teenage son. His son just wouldn't listen to him, and when he would ask him to do something, he would just drag his feet, and it would take forever. And then when his son graduated from high school, he decided to enlist in the Marine Corps. Well, his son came home, and his dad said, well, son, what have you learned in the Marine Corps? And he said, Dad, I have learned that right now means right now. You know, sometimes as parents, um, do you ever get frustrated because your kids don't take you seriously or take your commands seriously? I was thinking about God. Does God ever get frustrated and upset because his kids don't take him seriously? And then think about this. On this 4th of July weekend, as God looks at the state of our union, how does that affect him? Because, church, here's the reality. So many of our leaders and so many of our people do not take God seriously. The way that many leaders in our nation formulate policy or make decisions is not based on absolute truth. It's not based on a moral code that applies to every person and every place and every generation. So many of the decisions in this nation are based on public opinion. So many of our political leaders are more concerned about what the polls say rather than what God says. And what God says to us is designed to protect us. Now think about this. If you make a, a bad choice, what kind of consequence can you expect? Bad. If you make a good choice, what kind of consequence can you expect? A good one. So if you make a bad choice, a wrong choice, certain things happen. If you make the right choice, a good choice, certain things happen. But here's a question. Who determines what is right and what is wrong? And it goes right back to this model. Model number one, God does. There's an absolute truth that applies to everybody. Model number two, I get to decide for myself what is right and what is wrong. And here's what I want you to see. Only one of those models of truth leads to freedom. Think about this. Back in the Old Testament, God set his people free from slavery in Egypt. Remember that story? Anybody here ever see the old version of the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? All right. When he plays Moses. Now, when God sends Moses to Pharaoh, he has a message for Pharaoh. And what is that message? Let my people go. And that's only part of the message. 
The complete message is, let my people go so that they may worship me on my mountain. And what happens after the Israelites leave Egypt? They go to Mount Sinai. And what happens at the top of Mount Sinai? Does anybody know? What does God give to Moses? Yeah, the Ten Suggestions. The Ten Commandments, right? Now, think about this. The people of Israel have been set free from slavery. God wants to lead them into the Promised Land so they can live in freedom. So why did he give them the Ten Commandments? So they would know how to be free. Free to love him with all of their heart, mind, strength, and soul. Free to love their neighbor as themselves. That's how Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments. And think about this. I read the verses this morning. Jesus said, you shall know the what? The truth. Whose truth? Your truth? My truth? No. God's truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. See, listen. Real freedom isn't just doing whatever you please. Real freedom is the ability, the desire and the ability to live a life that pleases God. And that's the kind of freedom that Jesus wants us to know. Look at this verse from Psalm 34. It's such a powerful verse. Come, my children, and listen to me, and I will teach you what? I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, and isn't that what we really want? Well, what do we do? We'll keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies, turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. See, this fear of the Lord, this taking God seriously, really does protect us from guilt and fear and shame. We sang about it this morning. That's what happened at the cross. And this freedom is not just a freedom from those things, it's a freedom to live the life that God created us to live, a life of purpose, a life of power, God's power, a life of hope. And that brings us to this, this last benefit when it comes to the fear of the Lord. Look at this on your outline. Number three, the fear of the Lord enables us to live with wisdom in this world. Here's a classic verse. In fact, this is the verse of the week this week. It says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, how many of you in your whole life have ever had a financial problem? Anybody? Okay. What do you need to solve a financial problem? I think somebody in first service said a lot of cash. What do you need? You need to know what to do, right? You need wisdom. Where do you find wisdom for financial problems? Right, right here in the book. There are all kinds of scriptures and principles that if put into practice will lead us to financial freedom. What about this? How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand on this one. It didn't work really well in first service. How many of you who are married have ever had a problem in your marriage? Okay, you want to raise your hand anyway, that's fine. What do you need when you have a problem in your marriage? A lot of cash. No. <laughs> you need wisdom. You need to know what to do. How do you find out what to do? Well, you could read the book, right? Because this book has all kinds of, of wisdom. Church, I've got to tell you, I, I've been a pastor for a, a number of years now. And one of the privileges that I have is people coming to me and, and saying, hey, Pastor Dudley, what should I do? And that happens, of course, with people here in our church family with all kinds of situations. It happens with people outside our church family, people in my own family. And just this week, I had a, a friend come to me who's not a part of our church family. 
and, and basically asked me what he should do about his marriage because his marriage is falling apart. And here's what, here's what just breaks my heart. It's when I have a conversation with somebody and I say, okay, I, I think I understand what you're saying and here's what God's word says about that. Here's a principle which if put into practice will move your life and your marriage in a different direction and the purpose of that is because God loves you and he wants what's best for your life and the, and the person says to me, well, I, I can see that you believe that. I can see that works for you and for your marriage. I just don't think it'll work for me. See, Pastor Dudley, what you believe is true for you and what I believe is true for me, but they're not the same. And then I think about what happens when somebody has the complete opposite reaction and says, you know what, man, I am so wrong and I am so sorry and I need to repent and turn around and I need to take God's word and put it into practice because that leads to an entirely different kind of life. And church, let me say this. You know, when I read the statistics about what the general population believes and what Christians believe. Here's a, a newsflash. I know it's not, but if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible and actually take God seriously, you are in the minority in this nation. And it begs the question, well, okay, how should I respond and relate to those who don't believe what I believe? Because Christians have been characterized as so narrow-minded and inflexible. Have you heard this? I mean, this is the way many people think of believers. So how should we respond to people when they don't believe what we believe? Let me give you two scriptures to write down. In fact, these would be great scriptures to memorize. The first is this, 1 Peter 3.15. Because in this scripture, Peter assumes that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a hope that people recognize. And Peter says, look, you should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have to other people, but, but do it with gentleness and respect. So when we talk about things, when we talk about issues with people who don't believe what we believe, we should do it with gentleness and respect. And here's another verse. This is in John's Gospel, John 1:14, and it talks about Jesus, and it says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. As we respond to people, we should respond with grace and with truth. Is it possible to, to love somebody to accept them as a person and not approve of their behavior? Yeah. That's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. But listen, church, we must never compromise the truth of the gospel. That's what God calls us to do, to be people who embrace grace and embrace truth at the same time. And that leads to this last question on your outline. It says, in what area of your life do you need to take God more seriously? I mean, it could be your finances, it could be your work life, your sex life, your um, relationships in general. It could be forgiving somebody. Because we have some serious commands from a serious God, and the question is, have we tried to make excuses? Have we tried to rationalize our behavior instead of just saying, God, I'm out of step, I'm out of line. I need to repent and take you seriously and obey you. And church, let me do this. Instead of us just kind of talking about this in a theoretical sense, let's do this. Let's ask God right here, right now, to show us if there's anything in our heart that needs to change, any place that we don't take him seriously. So would you just bow your heads?
and pray with me. God, I just have such a strong sense that, that you're speaking to us this morning through your word. And Lord, I pray that we would listen. God, I pray for receptive hearts because God, the truth is we need to take you and your command seriously. So God, show us those places where we've, we've compromised your truth, where we've tried to say, but it's okay for me, or it's okay one time, or nobody will ever know, or whatever that lie of the enemy may be that we're believing. And God, as a nation, how much we need revival. God, we need you to turn us around because the path to revival is paved with repentance, God. And you know that. And Father, we know this, that revival doesn't start in the White House. It starts in your house with your people who take you seriously. God, I think about that verse in 2 Chronicles where it says, if my people, and this is your promise, God, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then and only then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. God, I pray that your people would turn to you and that we would pray for our leaders and pray for our government because, God, these are serious days. And Lord, I pray this as well. Sometimes we just, we don't think our sin is that serious. We don't think it's that big a deal. And God, if we ever begin to drift in that direction, I pray that we would remember the cross and remember what it cost Jesus Christ to pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled to you. And God, that as we think about that this morning, as we celebrate communion, that our hearts would overflow with thanks to you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read these verses from 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare.